0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Molly Solomon, housing reporter at KQED and the co-host of the podcast, Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. I'm really excited to be here moderating today's panel. Um, In 2020, A quarter of a million Californians experiencing homelessness requested help from the government. Um, Those were numbers that skyrocketed from previous estimates in some Bay Area counties. California, as we all know, has some of the highest housing and transportation costs in the nation. And some California residents each day are struggling to make ends meet. Now, Californians are demanding change, and a cross-sectional group of affordable housing and homelessness advocates have created what's called Roadmap Home 2030. This is a definitive plan to end homelessness and create affordable homes for all over the next 10 years. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by some of the prominent leaders in this movement that are fighting for housing for all. Ruby Bellaria Schifrin is here representing the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative as the Director of Housing Affordability. Representing a half million constituents in the 17th Assembly District, which includes Eastern San Francisco, is Assemblymember David Chu. Tamika Moss is founder and chief executive of All Home, a Bay Area nonprofit that's creating more economic mobility opportunities for extremely low-income people. And finally, we're excited to have Tanua Thrash Ntuk, the Executive Director of Los Angeles Local Initiative Support Corporation, also known as LA LISC. Um, Together, Ruby, David, Tamika, and Tanua are working alongside other housing advocacy organizations to implement Roadmap Home 2030. And it is extensive. There are 57 policy solutions in this plan that are setting out to create affordable homes, protect low-income renters, end homelessness, and ensure racial equity. So super easy tasks ahead of us. Um, Their detailed plan has creative solutions, uh, dedicated leadership, and this ambitious group that we're going to have a conversation with today believes that a better California is doable. So we're going to be talking about a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask that Um, you know, we include you in this conversation as well. We'll have an opportunity for you to ask questions. Um, If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat that's on YouTube, and we will get to them in the later half of this program. So first, I just want to say thank you so much, Ruby, David, Tamika, Tanua, for joining us today. Thank you. Um, You know, we kind of listed out some of the uh, goals of Roadmap Home 2030 at the top here, and, and they are ambitious, you know, ending homelessness, creating over a million new affordable homes, closing the racial equity gap. Um, and, and I guess I want to start with this isn't the first time that we have heard of a pledge to solve California's housing crisis. So, you know, what makes this one different? How will we get this done? And this is a question for everybody, but I'm going to start with Assemblymember Chio.
2: Thanks, Molly. Um, you know what I would start with is even before this pandemic and this recession, the state of California, the Bay Area, we had the worst housing crisis, the worst homelessness crisis, the worst tenant and eviction crises in our state's history. Um but you know, given that we're one year into the crises of COVID-19, um, we've seen homelessness increase. We have millions of Californians who have been one paycheck or unemployment check away from eviction. Housing production is nowhere close to where it needs to be. And while our state, we've taken real steps in recent years to address these crises, and we can talk about what we've done, if we are serious as a state to actually end the housing crisis and end the homelessness crisis. You know, as we've been talking about, we have to act boldly. Uh, you know, there's the the expression "you go big or go home." And in this instance, I think we like to say we want to go big so we can go home. We can put a roof over everyone's head. We all believe that. I don't think you could ask you could ask anyone in California. Do people think that we need to end homelessness and, and and get folks housed? And everyone will say yes. And so we've all come together to say, if we're serious about it, we need to know how to get there. And that's what Roadmap 2030 is about.
1: I think maybe we'll just go up from uh, the, the people that I can see in the Zoom here. Tamiko, why don't you uh, go next year?
3: Well, thanks, Molly. Um, it's great to be on the panel with everyone. Um, you know, I think the assembly members said it one of the things that makes Roadmap Home unique to me is that it's a 10-year vision. You know, we're, we're not asking folks to imagine a world where homelessness is, is um, alleviated tomorrow because it's taken decades, generations to get us to the position that the state of California is in with regard to an undersupply of deeply affordable housing for everyone who needs it. Um, the lack of Jobs that have allowed folks to keep pace with housing costs, competitive wages, where our low-income workers can actually see a future where they can take care of their families in the state of California. And so what excites me about this opportunity is it actually charts out very specific policies that if invested in, if believed in at the scale that we need to do it, um, I do believe it's possible. That we can end homelessness in um, the state of California, that we can um, make it a non recurring, brief um, moment in people's lives that doesn't af- affect and, and define the trajectory for their families for, for generations. And so I, I'm excited because it's taking bold action and it gives us, those of us who are working at different scales, you know, ba- all home works at the regional level. We are situating our planning efforts in the roadmap so that we can have both the regional and state response to this crisis. Because from my perspective, we need to be working at all levels of government, everyone in our community taking a, a, a active role in disrupting the cycle that seems um, permanent. And and I think we resist that uh, by, by leading with the roadmap.
0: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think yes and to everything that both Assemblymember Chu and Tamika Moss just said. For us, I think it's really interesting because we, um, you know, the there's there's a moment issue right now, right with the with COVID kind of compounding the impacts. It's not creating a new problem; it's exacerbating the existing ones. And the face of homelessness, frankly, is changing, right? Like I think people are starting to understand more and more across our state that it's it's not all because of mental illness or substance abuse, right? It's it's low wages, it's wage inequality, it's it's one bad health scare turned into car accident, right? Turned into, you know, your rent just went up. And so now someone who never thought that they would be homeless or living out of their car are having to deal with that reality. And I think that just shifts a little bit the public will around supporting these solutions. And so then on the flip side for us, we're like okay we want to support groups that are on the front lines united in a vision and effort towards mobilizing people elected officials right other groups towards sustainable long-term change and that's really what the roadmap um, embodies right is a, is a collective vision towards where we want to go and a unifying rally cry so that our leaders like assembly member two and others who are at we're working as lawmakers can have something to go off of, right? <laughs> I think one of the hardest things sometimes is we, we can talk about, there are a lot of different solutions to this, but what this has done is taken that work to figure out what are those, um, what can we agree to, and then how can we move forward together? And so we're really proud to support groups on the ground that have centered equity, centered racial justice, and centered impacted communities in
4: this um, roadmap. Thanks so much, Ruby, and uh, thanks to all my other fellow panelists. Uh, You all have kicked this off and uh, sort of, you know, started going into what is important. So I come to this conversation as a Housing California board member, in addition to being executive director for LISC LA. And part of that question, Molly, of what's different now, so there is a sense of urgency that we as board members have been feeling for some time. This is a matter that is urgent. Uh, Anybody who has experienced homelessness, uh, certainly all of us who are on the line, who worked uh, with the homeless population, know that it is a tragedy that must be addressed as soon as possible. This roadmap home is all about the fact that it's not going to take one thing, that it's not going to take one day, that it's not going to take one solution. So that's why you have 50 plus uh, solutions in this document. and those solutions span uh, planning uh, efforts, coordination efforts, financing efforts, local regional state efforts. Um, prior to that, we've been working one city at a time, one region at a time. We've been working you know one intervention strategy at a time. And really, the roadmap home is all about the fact that we've got to be comprehensive. It's going to take all of those strategies in order for us to address an issue that, as Tamika said, has that we have that's taken you know, frankly, in some cases, generations in the making um, in terms of where we are. So, the, in the roadmap home, not only does it have all those dimensions, and I like to think of it as uh, we have taken homelessness and said. No, there isn't one supreme solution. There are several that we need to be going after uh, all at one time. So we three-dimensionally really looked at it in the roadmap home. And then in addition to that, and I really appreciate Ruby uh, going ahead and putting that out there as well, is that this roadmap home is also imbibed with the understanding that diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice have got to be part of the solution as well. Um, And so as we move into the conversation, we can talk about what that means in terms of who's impacted most likely by homelessness. Uh, We can talk about how the production of housing as one element of being able to solve homelessness, who benefits uh, from that. Uh, in terms of financial uh, largesse and opportunity, um, and so the roadmap home looks at that and thinks about you know how do we make sure that we thread that needle not in one policy but in all of the policies that are set forth
1: uh, you know some of some of you brought this up the this this urgency you know in this moment that we 're in. Um, I wonder, I mean, California, we had a housing crisis well before the pandemic, and and it just seems like all of those inequalities have only gotten wider and more exacerbated because of this. Um, You know, Assemblymember Chu, how has the pandemic impacted our state's ability to respond to this affordability problem? I feel like, you know, especially when it comes to new policies or looking at the legislature for answers, a lot of that got put on hold last year because we were dealing with a global health emergency. Um, I wonder how you see moving forward. A lot of the policies, uh, especially some that have been noted in the roadmap plan, given that you know we're in a pandemic and possibly these housing affordability issues have actually gotten worse.
2: Well, I think for many of us who've been working in this space and on these issues, have been frustrated for years that. The fierce urgency of now, the the rallying cry that the civil rights movement has brought to so many issues, hasn't been brought to bore to bear for for this issue of housing, um, and and housing is still often treated as, as simply a market good that sometimes is priced too high for say one hundred and sixty thousand people a night to be able to afford uh, a roof over their heads, and for many of us, we just find that unacceptable. Now, what the pandemic did was not just highlight the inequities uh, and, and and showcase that, um, but it, it did two other things. It, it highlighted for us how intense things could get if we screwed up, and by that I meant um, we were very concerned at the beginning of this pandemic that uh, coronavirus would go incredibly viral through um, our homeless communities. And we actually started doing some things differently um, through so-called Project Room Key and Home Key to basically take underutilized spaces like hotels and motels and start putting folks um, in those spaces. And we were able to, in very quick order, get folks inside, which not only protected them from uh, coronavirus spread and and, and got them out of the elements, but proved that we could actually house formerly homeless folks quickly. Now, Now, that... Um, was able to house, say, in the tens of thousands of folks, but we still have, again, 160,000 folks who are sleeping on our streets any night of the week. But, you know, from my perspective, this experience of the pandemic both highlighted the extreme need, but also what happens when. We turn the crisis into an opportunity, and and I think that the work around roadmap three, uh, uh, 2030 is is really about saying w- we have to do it now for fierce urgency of now. We we and we have to do all of the above. We can't just do A or B or C. We've got to do all of it at the same time, um, if we're going to actually grapple with with this ch- with this crisis. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um I wonder too I I mean just to follow up on that um assembly member are you concerned that you know there is so much um that's needed in terms of you know the legislature's priorities um that 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 housing will get lost in the mix here
2: You know that's always a concern we're working on a million things uh as state policymakers but I will tell you that housing and homelessness Um, was at the top of the agenda before the pandemic, as evidenced by Governor Newsom devoting his last State of the State address before the pandemic entirely to the conversation of homelessness. But even at this moment, um, just a few hours ago, I was meeting with many of my colleagues, and uh, it was brought up that we have to get back to tackling this. And um, both the Assembly and the Senate are committed to this idea that we're going to have to go big. Um, And uh, we're all committed on the legislative side to the idea that, for example, a $20 billion expenditure at this moment is entirely appropriate if we're going to start to address this crisis. Um, And that's the level of scale that that we're going to need.
1: It's a big number. (laughs) Um, I want to bring, Tamika, I want to bring you into this conversation. um, You know, we 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 laid out some of the the opportunities to house homeless people through Project Roomkey, which is then turned into Project Home Key um, at the state. And 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 I know that you know more recently at All Home, you've been thinking really deeply about solutions and how we can go further to significantly reduce homelessness, especially at a regional level in the Bay Area. Um, we also had you know the most recent numbers come out uh, on the point in time counts in California, and, you know, it's 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 grown in the state to more than 160,000 people that are homeless, and about half of the country's unsheltered homeless population are in the Golden State. That was before the pandemic. You know, we haven't even done a more recent count, and we probably won't know those numbers until next year, at least. Why do you think we're going in, in the wrong direction?
3: Well, Molly, I think part of the challenge is that we we were in my opinion doing our best to maintain homelessness across the state right where you had folks who had different levels of chronicity we th- there there was sort of a a tolerance frankly for the fact that there were many of our neighbors who were calling the streets home for decades and i and i think what what has happened is that Homelessness is not just a crisis for the people experiencing it. It's a crisis for the entire community. When you see your neighbor degradating on the street, having difficulty, dying on the street, that's not just an empathy or human impact. That has an impact on the entire uh, viability of our community. And so I think what the pandemic has done is sort of lifted up the humanity of why poverty, homelessness, lack of social safety nets, all of those structural challenges that many of us have been working on for decades are now at the front door and the the front of mind for for folks who typically were just living their lives and and doing the best they could. And now they're impacted. Um, And so I think, you know, Ruby said this, I think it is um, the exposure of how serious the crisis of homelessness and housing insecurity is is not just about uh, political choices or revenue shares or it's actually about what kind of region what kind of state do we want to live in our progressive values and principles have to actually match how we live in our communities and that that does start with recognizing that the pandemic was a spotlight on challenges that we have not done a great job at trying to solve. And in order to solve them, we can't make one-time investments. One of the things that I think is incredibly necessary is that we make an ongoing commitment to resolving these challenges. $20 billion sounds like a ton of money, and that is extraordinary. And just in the Bay Area to resolve a set to to achieve a 75% reduction in unsheltered homelessness over the next three years would cost us $6.5 billion. So when you think about scale of investment, that is an incredible number. But what we have to do is sustain our investments. We have to be sustaining the right interventions over time. We can't abandon the things that we know work. When we have people for every, when I was a practitioner, for every person I would house, three more people would become homeless during the same period of time. And so what what you've heard from my colleagues is that we have to make simultaneous investments in interim housing, which brings people off the street. We have to make simultaneous investments in permanent housing, which allows people to actually have permanent places to live and not just permanent supportive housing. Not everyone who is experiencing a homeless uh, housing crisis needs intensive services. They need deeply affordable housing. So we need permanent exits that match people's needs. And we need to simultaneously invest in prevention, Molly. We have to prevent as many people from coming into our homelessness system as possible. And I think if we're able to kind of make those simultaneous investments in the solutions that work and sustain them, then we will actually see reductions over time in the number of our neighbors who are experiencing this crisis. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that, uh, Ruby, I want to bring you into this as well. I mean, I I feel like we all uh, are on the same page that, you know, the solution to homelessness is to house people. Um, Why can't we just build more housing or why is it so difficult to do that? And um, where's that money going to come from?
0: Yeah, great question. We, we do need to build more housing. That is definitely part of the solution, but I wanna be clear also that we can't build our way out of this either. Um, that there are structural inequities, again, rooted in racism, right? Like when you look at the state of California, since 1980, Black homeownership has declined by 20%. Nationally, Black homeownership is at about 48%, which is lower than it was pre-discrimination laws in, the, in 1968. So there's something seriously wrong structurally, not only that, but we actually, there was a Brookings um, study that came out that talked about devaluing black neighborhoods, right? That the value of a neighborhood that is predominantly black, even if you hold everything else steady, like between that home and a white home, the black home is worth less. That's crazy, which means you're actually taking wealth away from black households. Um, the Brookings Institute, uh, by the way, estimated um, that the black neighborhoods are undervalued by an average of forty eight thousand, amounting to one hundred and fifty six billion in cumulative losses. So part of the question that we ask to, um, you know, at CZI in terms of what we fund, who we fund, how we support this ecosystem is where are we building? who are we building for and whose input was uh, part of that process, right? We need, and the roadmap lays this out really well. We need to be building in high opportunity areas, areas that have been, you know, really mandated for single family house housing that has made housing more costly to build. Right. And I think that there's in this conversation, not to get too nuanced, right. But like there's, as, as Timiko was saying, there's permanent supportive housing, there's capital A deed restricted affordable housing, there's just normal market rate housing that used to be more affordable to folks. Right. And what's happening is we're putting so much pressure with the lack of all of these housing types that it's almost like a game of musical chairs and the people with the most resources win um, right? and and get that chair. (laughs) And so we're, we're creating more segregation and more inequality. And so I think having that kind of holistic approach of when thinking about Where are we building? What resources are are we putting on it? We need that multi-pronged approach that Tamika was, was mentioning so that we can, um, you know, divert resources from the government to where it needs to go, as well as things like zoning reform that doesn't cost folks a lot of money and actually creates opportunity for a private market potentially to come in and serve a certain section of the market. Like as as Tamika and David were saying, we, you know, we can't, uh, it's not completely a market good, right? But at the same time, we've made it really hard for everybody across all income spectrums pretty much um, to make it work. So I think a lot of um, what we're trying to do is not just the, how do we build more, but how do we dismantle the systemic racism that permeates in our system today?
1: Um, Tanua, you know, kind of jumping off of what Ruby was saying here, you know, racial equity and dismantling some of these systems. I mean, that's sort of a core part of this plan. Um, You know, knowing our housing history, there is, um, you know, a long legacy of Redlining, racist policies. H- how does you know roadmap home twenty thirty undo a lot of that? You know the negative effects that redlining have, has had on communities of color, and how do we begin to close these gaps? Uh, what solutions are there that can help us get there?
4: So uh, all of my fellow panelists have a, have sort of led up to a piece of this in terms of what is possible. You started Molly with the question of. Oh there's a pandemic we couldn't possibly have time or the money uh, to address this issue. Well in fact the pandemic has made us get creative and the pandemic has made us really focus on a set of solutions as the assemblyman pointed out that uh, you know we moved quickly. You know we got thousands, tens of thousands of people off the street because we knew that their unhoused circumstance was a threat not only to them but everybody in the community, and it was necessary that we move. We've also seen uh, for a number of our working families who have, uh, you know, taken their entire paychecks, 50, 60, 70% of it, to put it into housing, and they've been asking for relief uh, because we can't provide the kinds of jobs that give them the income to be able to afford. This pandemic has shown us that we can help people pay rent. That we can help people, uh, you know, stay housed by being able to focus on those who are of lowest income. And then this concept, if we, when we think about who is that, right, who are those people? In the state of California, we know by and large, uh, Ruby gave the statistics on home ownership. The statistics are in the opposite direction when it comes to who is homeless in this state. And in you know, certainly in LA County, uh, the largest population is Black people. Um, Here in L.A. County, while we represent about 8% of the county, more than 40% of those who are homeless are Black. Um, These are not coincidence, right? This is structural, systematic circumstances that make it more and more difficult uh, for people to be able to access housing, sustain that, let alone get to a point where they're thriving in that housing. So you ask, how is the Roadmap Home addressing that? Uh, Part of what we have to do in the roadmap home is that we we have to build. Um, And it's great that we need to build in high opportunity areas. But in order to do that, the roadmap home also says we've got to rezone in such a way that we understand that uh, there's an opportunity to share the land, right? So we have to think about air rights um, at this point. We have to think about uh, going maybe one story up uh, in neighborhoods uh, so that we can Keep pace with the number of people that are here who need to be housed uh, in our communities. Um, those are elements. Uh, there's also this idea that, um, and I, I'm loving that we're talking both rental housing uh, as well as home ownership, because you can't forget about home ownership. So many families are able to sustain themselves because, you know, while it might not be comfortable to have two and three families in a home. At least we have an opportunity to create uh, a structure and a family unit that can work together and maybe move on into different circumstances. Without home ownership, it's very difficult to do that. Uh, without home ownership of the land, you can't transform that land into the size of home that you need in order to accommodate your family. And in many communities, we know that family uh, is intergenerational. And so being able uh, to sustain is important there. So we've got to talk about rental. We've got to talk about home ownership as well. And then finally, I'll say um, a lot of what we're talking about is that, yes, it costs money to build housing. It costs money. We know the land costs. We expect that it's going to. Uh, we've got to pay people who are working on these projects a living wage. Um, we've got to compensate any owners who are using their land for this process and any other Uh, consultants that are part of this project. And so the question becomes, who is involved in being able to benefit from the financial construction of this housing that we need to have? And that has uh, a racial equity lens. We have an opportunity uh, to identify BIPOC-led entrepreneurs of color who can help with building this housing. So at the very same time that we're looking to build up the economic opportunity in communities, as we're building up the housing uh, in communities, the opportunity to marry the two are there. And we need to be setting goals and thinking about how can we make sure that those who benefit, not just from the housing and being in it, but those who are part of the commerce and construction of that housing are also people, you know, of the community uh, who will have a chance to benefit as well.
1: Um, Assemblymember, I, I wanted to go back to something that you know was passed earlier this year um, with the goal of protecting renters, you know, amid a pandemic from being evicted. Um, you know, you and your colleagues in Sacramento had passed a moratorium that expires in couple months now. um, I wonder, what are the short and long-term things that you're going to be doing to make sure that the 2.1 million struggling renters right now are protected from a wave of evictions?
2: So to contextualize it to folks who may not know what we did, uh, during this pandemic, because we asked folks to shelter in place, um, a lot of folks uh, lost their jobs, uh, saw no income, and were not able to pay rent. Um, And while there was an initial eviction moratorium that was put in place by the courts, uh, last summer, the courts decided that uh, they weren't able to continue that legally. And so we extended for a few months eviction protections that essentially said as long as you couldn't pay your rent because of COVID, you wouldn't get evicted. Well, those protections were slated to end at the end of January, uh, which meant that we were staring down an eviction cliff potentially involving millions of Californians. Fortunately, the federal government came through. So Washington, D.C., federal government, which is the only level of government that can literally print money during crises like these, sent to California $2.6 billion that we were able to get out, um, not just to struggling tenants, but to help them pay struggling landlords who were challenged in in making the mortgages where their tenants were living. Um, This program just went into effect, and for folks who are listening who – make less than 80% of the area median income you are eligible you should go visit housingiskey.com what we're doing at this moment is we are monitoring those funds we don't know how long the 2.6 million sorry 2.6 billion dollars will will last um, our hope is it will go a long way toward addressing the crisis, um, but we don't exactly know. And to your point, um, these protections and this program is, are effectively going to run out at the end of June. So we are monitoring this closely because the last thing we need right now as we're trying to come out of this pandemic and put our economy back on track is seeing hundreds of thousands of tenants evicted onto our streets. Um, So it's very likely in the next couple of months, we'll have to have another conversation of what more we need to do in this area.
1: Could that conversation be an extension of the moratorium?
2: Absolutely. If it were up to me, uh, I'd initially proposed that we extend the moratorium to the end of this year. The decision was made to extend it to the middle of June. Um, fortunately, President Biden and Vice President Harris and the Democrats in Washington have agreed to a second tranche of money that we are able to distribute in California. So we're going to figure out in the next couple of months the rules and the terms under which we are able to help folks because the alternative of allowing Rental debt that are not the fault of tenants to then result in a huge wave of homelessness that that clearly that's not a viable option for for California at this time.
1: Um, Tanu, I know your organization LISC is is uh, is is part of this effort. They were hired by the state to administer the you know two billion dollars she had mentioned earlier that that gets distributed through this new rent relief program that the state is coordinating. Um, I wonder how that's going. I mean, how is it that we're ensuring that the relief is getting into the hands of, of families, whether it's struggling renters or landlords who need it the most, um, so that they aren't, you know, left with significant debt that could hurt further, you know, housing opportunities for them and could even maybe even have them fall into homelessness.
4: Yeah, I want to thank Assembly Members like Assembly Member Two for their leadership in making sure that we had a program that was up and running as quickly as possible uh, here in California to really help renters and to give uh, renters and landlords an understanding as to what kind of help they can expect and sort of what the rules of the game were going to be. Uh, You noted that LISC uh, has been uh, hired by the state or contracted with the state to help deploy the 2.6 billion. That's not quite right. Uh, We are part of a team of other uh, organizations and consultants And really, our work as LISC is rooted in our experience in being a ground game and local supported organization. So what we're doing um, is really focusing on building up a local partner network of organizations uh, who know community, who know uh, where community is located. Uh, We are anticipating in order to get people to apply to this online only Portal. um, That there are folks in remote places. uh, There are people who have disabilities and can't get out. Uh, There are those who don't have broadband access. And even if they do, uh, their uh, digital literacy and fluidness and ability to upload documents may be difficult. Uh, we know that uh, these organizations that we're uh, contracting with and, and have on a local level, we're asking them to make sure that they're providing information in language um, so that people who have uh, speak other languages other than English are well accounted for um, in the system. And frankly, you know, we are making sure that organizations understand that this is all about helping those eligible households, regardless of uh, language level, because literacy may be an issue. I mean, it's an intensive um, application that the federal government is asking us to verify things from households, um, and we want to make sure that we have folks who are able to um, access that application. The uh, Assemblyman has put the housingiskey.com website out there we need every eligible household, uh, anyone who is holding rent debt right now, uh, now is the time to ask for help. Um, And in addition to that, this is also a program that's focusing on future rent. So if there is an eligible household and maybe the arrears are taken care of, uh, there is an opportunity to get future rent accommodated for. And in addition to rent, we also know that some families forego paying their utilities in order to keep the, uh, the, you know, the roof over their heads. Um, and so this program also allows for um, those households to be able to get their utilities paid. And those can actually be paid up to 100% of what those um, back uh, debt is for utilities. Um, so yeah, so the it's, it's, it's going. We've got about 101 uh, local partner network organizations across the state working in community. We'll probably add a few more. Um, But we want to see more applications. We want to see more households uh, coming in because we know that that rent debt is out there.
1: All right. Housingiskey.com, if you haven't signed up already. (laughs) Um, Ruby, you know, we have a pretty stark income gap here in the Bay Area. Um, Can you explain that to us and, and, and how, you know, we've seen the success of huge companies that have come here, huge tech companies that have come here, Um, How has that contributed to that widening gap, uh, especially when we're talking about high housing costs here?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing for sure is that the the housing affordability crisis long predates kind of the rise of of tech in particular in in Silicon Valley. Right. But it was more so in a lot of ways attributed to the decades of systemic inequalities that disproportionately impact uh, low and middle income Californians. That said, the rapid growth of these companies, the wage inequality, and the influx of people that the region hasn't been able to accommodate for has really worsened these underlying issues within our housing system. Um, and it's created a couple you know, dynamics. One is soaring rent and, and high housing prices um, that are just out of reach for many residents. Second is greater displacement as a result of that, right? Particularly low-income folks and people of color. And kind of when I was talking about the, the game of musical chairs, I feel like for me that um, you know, is that visual? And then also, uh, the third is greater inequality because the folks who have, the folks who can stay and the folks who also are able to move to areas of high opportunity and kind of resource rich areas see better economic outcomes, not only for themselves, but for their children. Uh, Raj Chetty has done a lot of work on this, right, in terms of economic mobility and how place matters. And so I think that's extremely important um, when thinking about why. You know why why we should mitigate displacement. Why we should, you know, think about uh, ways to be more inclusive and accommodate this growth. Um, The outcomes are bad for everyone, right? And so we really believe that all different sectors—philanthropy, business, tech, residents, policymakers—need to come together just to solve California's housing crisis.
1: You know, CZI has invested, you know, a significant amount of both, you know, money uh, into a lot of the um, investments in housing, you know, not just in the Bay Area, but but across the whole state. Um, what have been the outcomes of those investments so far? Um, and, and are there limitations? Like, do we need more than just money? I mean, I think we've talked about that some, that it's not just one fix. But um, But I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the investments that you have made and if you've seen any outcomes from those.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first one that I could talk about that's really Bay Area specific is the Partnership for the Bay's Future. And and that was designed in mind. Um, and actually, LISC is our fund manager on that in, in Northern California. Um, and it was designed in partnership from the get go. Right. And so San Francisco Foundation manages the policy fund. So it's actually, to your point. It's not just all about money. Um, And so even when thinking about what to fund and how to fund, we were really conscious in that this would be an investment fund and a policy fund, right? And Tamika Moss is actually a part of this too. Um, So on the policy fund side, it's grant money awarded to jurisdictions and community-based organizations to help implement protection, preservation, production type policy. Um, So most recently groups, and and so you get a two-year fellow embedded um, to help support that work. And um, the fellows uh, came on board about like a month or two before COVID hit. (laughs) So it was a very interesting transition. But actually, one of the things we learned in that was that government really appreciated the added capacity in a really stark time. And frankly, I think it kept housing at the forefront um, of people's mind during this pandemic. because You had someone dedicated to that that was paid for. Um, the, a lot of the things that they were working on were things like first right of refusal, um, kind of topa-copa type agreements, right, where um, the community gets an opportunity to purchase a property when it goes up for sale at market rate. Um, and then on the investment side, it's a $500 million investment fund that CZI seeded with 40 million first loss capital to help produce, preserve more housing. Um, so the goal is to produce or preserve 8,000 units of housing across the five County Bay area. Um, and we've seen about, and actually I just got updated numbers on this, so I might, um, not have the most up-to-date numbers for you, but we've closed on about 13 deals so far, which is exciting for over 1200 units. Um, and this is what's I think really exciting about it is again, it's rooted in that, um, collaboration, right? It's, JP Morgan Chase is involved, um, San Francisco foundation, Genentech, Facebook, Facebook specifically created a fund in there called the community housing fund, which is, um, 150 million specifically for ELI, extremely low income. So it's, uh, lended out at a rate of 2%, which is great, really competitive in the market. Like when you were talking about kind of what other obstacles are in the way, it's the high cost of housing, right? Uh, Nationally, it's about $200,000 a unit to build an affordable housing unit. In the LA area, you might correct me on this, but it's around $400,000. In the Bay Area, you're looking even higher than that. So it's, and that against the backdrop of uh, dwindling government funds, right, coming in both from the federal and the state level, we've just been disinvesting in this, um, creates a bigger gap to build. So Part of what the roadmap does too is address that and saying we need to reinvest into our housing system. And I know Assemblymember Chu has a bill on this too to expand the um, LITEC, the loan, the uh, credit, the housing credit to help build more housing. So that's just that's one example. Um, Another kind of example too in in the Southern California region is we just actually launched a local owner rental. coalition. So this is um, a coalition to support BIPOC owners to retain their rental units. Like we were talking about the impact that renters are facing. That pressure also puts pressure on mom and pop owners, right? Who um, are maybe a few mortgage payments away from getting pressured to sell or go into foreclosure. And when we're talking about wealth building and actually not just holding on, not just, you know, taking buckets of water out of the boat, but actually plugging the holes in the boat, um, we need to also be talking about the wealth building piece. And so that's really focused on supporting both tenants and also these owners to retain the, their assets. Um, but I'll stop there. I feel like it's a lot of talking. Oh, yeah.
1: Tamika, you know, this is a plan that spans like 10 years, uh, the goal being to get to these targets by 2030. Um, What's the thing behind that sort of longer vision? Um, And does that longer runway offer any challenges or or
3: opportunities? Well, I, I think it offers opportunity because it allows for us to imagine a world where we actually have persisted in the efforts that we're setting up now. Um, in order to make those longer-term investments toward these perennial crises. Um, I wanted to highlight uh, a couple things with respect to both how the timeline and, frankly, creating the actual infrastructure for sustainable housing growth and actually addressing the homelessness crisis. So Assemblymember Chu and his leadership um, created the Bay Area Housing Financing Authority. And that allows us to actually have a regional infrastructure where we can focus on the three P's to preserve, protect, and produce housing across the region. These issues are not just local. They are regional. They are national. And so to have a, a an entity that can raise revenue, that can um, strategize and plan across jurisdictions to really think about what kinds of sustained investments and strategy do we need to be lining up in a co- cohesive and coordinated fashion that allows us to actually see improvements over time. That's what the roadmap offers us. And, and having BAFA in the space allows us to do leveraging of public dollars, of private dollars. These are often public-private partnerships that we're leveraging to get um, impact at scale. And so I think it's really important that the federal government and the Biden-Harris administration is looking at housing as infrastructure, because to me it's not just about services it's not just about programs right it's about how do we deal with the systemic barriers that perpetuate these issues in the first place make investments in those in those areas and be unapologetic in the fact that we are we are all about closing the racial disparities homelessness and poverty is not happening to everyone and yet What we talk about all the time is how we have to spread these resources so thinly because we have so many priorities. That is absolutely the case. I've worked in the public sector. I know that well. But the fact of the matter is this is life and death for more and more people in our community. And so I would just posit that if we make the right kinds of investments over the sustained period of time that the roadmap is introducing, we will actually need to spend less on emergency and urgent interventions, and actually spend more time on, pres- on, on creating a society that can thrive for all. So if we make the right upfront investments that the roadmap is plotting out over the next 10 years, then our costs shift. We spend the um, billions of dollars on corrections every year. And if we could imagine a world where we, did, where we don't have to be correcting people because we've invested in their livelihood and sustainability, then we actually have a different contribution from every, every uh, person in the state of California. So I think it both is reimagining how we spend and utilize our resources and thinking about comprehensive long-term investments toward those goals.
1: Um, I I had a question and I hadn't really thought of who I would ask it to yet. So if anyone wants to jump in and answer, go for it. But I think I think I have, um, you know, I hear a lot as a housing reporter, you know, is, uh, you know, it's not always just about the money and having that to solve the problem. It's also about people and and forging trust there, Um, you know, especially when sort of kind of the go to answer is that we just need more housing. Um, how, how do you build trust uh, at the community level um, to trust that, you know, the developers who are building this housing have the community's best interests in mind? Um, I don't know who wants to, to to attempt to answer that, but how do we kind of change that? You know, I think there is a lot of mistrust. And I definitely hear that when I go out and talk to people, you know, especially with maybe more recent reporting on zoning. You know, we hear that, well, what are they going to build? And are we just going to have it be a free for all? Um
4: I saw you unmute. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the values as well in having a roadmap home is that as I've presented presented it in different settings, I say to communities, and where do you see your community fitting in here? And wh- what part of this plan do you think your community could take on um, so that we could achieve what we're, I mean, to me, I was like, yes, I love that society. Let's go for it, you know. Um, and so the, there is an opportunity for community to be able to do, to have some, uh, uh, you know, self um, planning and, se- you know, but but the, but communities have to move. So that's the second piece of what I want to talk about. One, I ask communities, find yourself in this plan, uh, not that your community has to do everything. There's a lot of things in here. Um, some of it is financial as you. some of it is not. Um, and if you take on some piece of it, that gets us, that creates the momentum that we need. And then the second is that uh, communities have to move, right? So we, we can't be paralyzed by this idea that I don't know, you know what they're going to do or they have ill intentions. The intention here as a community, the big goal here is that we want everyone. We want to end homelessness. I don't want my five-year-old son to know what that word means. I want it to be obsolete, right? And so that's what we're aiming for. And if that's what we're aiming for, eradicating the term, making it no longer necessary in any dictionary that we know, that means that every community has to move. And wallowing in distrust, it's, um, you know, take the roadmap, figure out what sections, you know, your community can work on. Take that piece. And then uh, when developer shows up, uh, you, you'll already say, hey, you know, we're expecting 50 percent of this to be affordable. We're expecting, you know, that you're going to have diverse entrepreneurs working on this uh, particular project. Um, and so that it's no longer waiting to react. It's no longer wallowing in that distrust. It is uh, taking responsibility for uh, what can be done at the local level in your community, and hopefully the Roadmap Home gives you some great ideas.
1: Well, I think we are at time to move to audience questions, and I've seen a bunch of them starting to stream in here, so I'm going to go ahead and just just read some of them out. Um, we've got a question that's come in about, uh, is there any talk of major reform of CEQA, California Environmental Quality Act, Um, it appears to be highly misused at times. Maybe
2: Assemblymember Chu, did you want to- Sure. So every year, there are always um, quite a few bills in the CEQA space. And I do think there needs to be a conversation of what we can do to improve on it. I think there's a lot of consensus that I share uh, that CEQA has been a really important law to protecting our environment and ensuring that we are are planning and developing in the right way. Um, But it has been misused. Um, And there are folks who uh, have chosen to file appeals against neighbors- uh, out of spite uh, for reasons that are not really legitimate. The problem is um, there are stakeholders uh, who feel very strongly that um, CEQA needs to be protected and they have other solutions on how to address homelessness. And as I often say, um, you know, it's easy in the political process to kill uh, and stall reform, it's harder to get things done. And what I see in the housing policy space and the housing political space is every stakeholder brings their pet uh, policy issue. So there are some who want to figure out how to uh, reform CEQA. There are others that want to figure out how to get a lot more money into affordable housing. There are others who want to streamline housing development and others who want to protect tenants. And what often happens is – Each interest has their pet idea. They don't like other ideas, and so everything dies uh, politically. And what I'm always pushing is to see if we can do all of the above, to just – move forward on a number of ideas that collectively will move the needle uh, because waiting for one idea to happen and get through and then another idea to happen, we not only don't have the luxury of time, but it's not going to get us to where we're going to go. And to get to your question of the the 10-year horizon, we have to set a time goal. Um, If it were up to me, it would be faster, but I think it's hard to imagine realistically, for example, ending homelessness in five years. And so the idea of ending homelessness in the next 10 years – I may happen to have a bill, AB 816, that will call on the state of California and every city and county in the state to establish a 10 year plan to um, ending homelessness. We all know it's doable if we have the will to do it, um, but we have to agree that we're going to do it and we have to really support all of the above solutions.
1: And I guess to, to CEQA, too, uh, you know, that was part of uh, why the. You know, governor was able to move so quickly with Project Homekey is that, you know, they were able to include uh, a piece of that that said that CEQA could be waived for acquiring and converting some of these hotels and motels that just made the process go so much faster. Um, interesting. So uh, another question that's come in is, um, won't these simultaneous investments, they're going to need some sort of public private partnership. The state's not going to be able to shoulder all of this on their own. Um, so how, how do we do that?
3: Well maybe maybe I'll start there. I mean, I couldn't agree more with the caller. Um and, and maybe Tanua was also saying this. Every single stakeholder in our community across the state has a role to play, civically resourced to, to ending Uh, homelessness, but also dealing with the social ails that that continue to to permeate and and reverberate around homelessness and poverty. And so public-private partnerships, I think, are an incredible way to pilot to in, innovate, to be creative about ways in which we can study things, we can learn things, we can make investments. CZI is a great example. They make investments in, in ideas because the government doesn't have as much flexibility all the time. We don't. The government doesn't have resources um, that can be deployed quickly all the time, right? And so, I think those public-private partnerships facilitates both. Uh, creativity and um, a sense of agility. You can try things. You can learn fast. You can fall fast. And then, what we hope is by demonstrating success, then we get our public sector partners at the table to really invest at scale. I one of the key elements of this of this moment is that the federal government has reengaged in this issue in a way that we have not seen in decades. In fact, they have been disinvesting in housing and homelessness for decades, which is why jurisdictions like the state of California and many other states around the country have had homelessness increase, have had um, many of our other economic and social challenges worsen. So it is heartening to see that the federal government is taking leadership around this, and we need that sustained partnership in order to keep the private sector and philanthropic sector at the table.
1: Um, There was another question that has come in, and it's, how do these ideas protect minorities that are already experiencing, you know, years, decades worth of discrimination, Um, policies that have discriminated against them for years? Uh, How do we go beyond that? How do these ideas protect um, those same communities?
4: So there are a couple of places uh, in the roadmap home that really, you know, tackle head on Um, single family home zoning, uh, you know, some of that exclusive zoning that uh, has kept so many BIPOC communities from accessing higher opportunity communities. And people have asked me, what does that mean? Uh, We take for granted that having access to a local public education that is of quality, uh, being able to, uh, walk to work, uh, being able to access fresh foods, fruits, vegetables, uh, in your community. These things, I think a number of people take for granted. And one of the elements there is all, you know, within the, um, roadmap home is really, um, you know, asking communities to think about uh, what else we can be doing to create the kinds of neighborhoods that are inclusive of all income levels um, and not just uh, monolithic uh, income levels.
3: and if i if I could just add, I think one of our challenges is that we have to acknowledge our history so that we can be informed by our future. If we aren't acknowledging that in fact, what undergirds many of these challenges, is structural racism that actually reverberates around these issues today in 2021, we have to get a baseline understanding that that's actually, in fact, what we're working with so that we can target it in order to see different outcomes. And there are very specific examples. You heard from my colleagues around the percentage of folks in the general population who are in San Francisco, it's less than 5% of the population who is African-American and 37% of the population who are homeless. We have to reconcile that reality and not just be dismayed by it because it's, it's soul crushing. We have to actually then target interventions that are culturally responsive that actually listen to the people with lived experience who are telling us what they need, and yet we give them something back that they don't recognize. We have to be making adjustments based on what communities actually need and be persistent in those investments so that folks can start to undo some of the historic inequities and, dis- and discrimination that has uh, you know, riddled through their communities for decades.
2: Uh, I want to just hop in for a second on, on this question and say that Um, It is important for us to know where we came from and know our history. And for this crowd, if you are not familiar with the book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, that literally lays out the decades of racism and discrimination and what that impact has been um, – folks should know it. And and there are very specific policies in Roadmap Home 2030 that are trying to reverse that. So for example, we know, let's take the Bay Area. There are communities that are not particularly diverse from a racial standpoint or from an income standpoint. We need to build affordable housing in those high opportunity areas close to the good jobs, close to the good schools, close to transit. Um, We know that in the Bay Area, um, we've had a a a structural supermajority voter threshold to approve funding for affordable housing, which is a two-thirds threshold. And generally what that means is wealthy, rich uh, communities um, typically vote against resources that could help build affordable housing to help everybody else. And so there's a specific proposal to reduce that Legislative threshold from two thirds down to fifty five percent, and then related to that, even baked in the state constitution, Article Thirty Four, um, that stemmed out of racism that has made it difficult to build affordable housing. We need to get rid of that. All of these things take political will, but if we understand where we came from and there's a commitment to addressing the equity issues of 2021, this is what this is the hope.
0: Right. And can I just add to just keep going Um, just that, you know, I think sometimes people are hearing this message and you're hearing more about, you know, ending single family zoning. And it's this rallying cry, I think, for folks across the political spectrum within housing. And then some folks are like, but I just want my single family home. I'm not racist. Like, you know, I just I just want my house. And why, why, why do I have to accept this duplex or something nearby? And I think to that, I mean, this gets back to the, how do you work with communities? You know, since this past year, right? Since George Floyd's death in particular, we've had this year of racial justice reckoning and what that means and people being more introspective and asking themselves these questions. And I think this is this is, this is is the work people have to do. We talk about everyone in, like this is also the work that residents need to do, homeowners need to do in terms of why am I not okay with that? Why? Just like keep asking yourself why to really underpin that. And I mean, I would challenge folks to do that because I think that it's when you actually think about the outcomes of what we're looking for, people really care about living in inclusive, diverse communities. They care about have making sure that everybody has a safe, affordable, accessible place to live. And so focusing on those outcomes sometimes is easier than worrying about, you know, why am I holding on to single family zoning so hard? Like, you know, shouldn't everybody get these same benefits and access? Why I, I shouldn't have gotten lucky, um, right? Like, I'm from the Bay Area. My I'm first generation in, in Indian American. And my parents, when they came here, they came here because my aunt had a place in Daly City. And they had three families in there until they could, you know, going back to you know what you were saying, until they could get a job and make enough money to, you know, have their own place. And it feels like luck. And that's just not okay.
1: Um. I wish we could just keep talking for like the next hour, but what we have reached the point where we've got one last question. So, so here's um, the final question that came in from someone and it's, it's a question that uh, is for all of you. Um, obviously there's no magic wand to fix this problem, but if there was one policy fix that you could implement tomorrow to help,
4: what would it be? For me, it's not a policy fix. It is um, an opportunity to uh, change hearts and minds so that there is a focus on the fact that uh, those who are hurting, those who are in poverty, those who are unhoused, everybody has got to be doing everything they possibly can to solve and to work on those issues. So for me, it is not a policy matter because I think that that will come. I wanna keep focusing on the hearts and minds that we need to win um, on whatever that path is that people see, but the path to being able to have the kind of society that all of my colleagues have just described where everyone is housed and has an opportunity to thrive in that place.
1: Assembly member, do you wanna go next? (laughs) The one superpower housing fix. I think
2: (laughs) building on what Tanua said, What I would do is it's more of an action. I would take all of the stakeholders who are typically at war on how to accomplish these goals and I would put them in a room and I would lock the door. And I would tell them, um, let's just take a moment to all agree that we have to figure out how homelessness is going to end in the Bay Area by 2030 and let everyone pause on that. And once we've done that, I will then say the room is locked until we figure out what we're going to do to commit to doing that. And I have a feeling that most of the ideas are embodied in this Roadmap Home 2030 document. And... um, And then when they all figure it out, we'll let them out and we'll all go do our work and get it done. And hopefully in 10 years, we'll have a panel where we talked about that moment in 2021 during the pandemic when we all agreed to do this.
4: That's a twist on Project Roomkey. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's like the world's hardest escape room. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Tamika, what's your what's your um, superpower? (laughs) Housing. Policy
3: fix. Yeah, I, I building off of, of Tanua and and the assembly members' comments, I I do think the the first step is a mental model shift that we can solve it, um, because if we if we are not if we don't believe it is possible, it will not materialize. No matter how great the strategy, no matter how much money we put at it. If we don't believe that the ultimate goal is to ensure that everyone has a home, then we don't get there. So my superpower would be that in the next 10 years, we have unleashed everything. What, what Malcolm X said, by all means necessary to bring 160,000 people indoors and housed in 10 years, is a doable goal. And that is what I would be facilitating my superpower to to, to, to deliver.
0: I mean, do they stole it? I'm going to say. No. <laughs> the, but I agree. I mean, it's the hearts and minds, right? Because that, that is the foundation for any kind of real success. And I think uh, Assemblymember Chu also on the collaboration piece, it's like if if you win hearts and minds, and if you get people to collaborate, because we are stronger together, Right. And, and we all actually do want similar things. And so let's stop getting our own way. Um, and so I think that would be hearts and minds. So, yes, plus one to all that.
1: <laughs> well, on that feel good note <laughs> that we're all tomorrow going to go solve the housing crisis. <laughs> um, I just want to extend a huge thank you to to all of you, to Nua, Ruby, Tamika, um, Assemblymember Chu, thank you so much for spending the last hour and joining us today on this panel discussion. Um, we'd also like to thank all of you, our audience, for watching and participating live with us today. Um, thank you so much. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making this virtual programming possible, uh, you can visit commonwealthclub.org/online. I'm Molly Solomon. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Stay safe and healthy.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.